0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Dr. Robert Bartholomew. Sociologist, uh, medical sociologist studies topics on the margins of science, such as UFOs, Bigfoot, lake monsters. He's also published widely on mass hysteria and social panics, including a recent groundbreaking study in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine on how social media is spreading mass psychogenic illness. He teaches history at Botany College in Auckland, New Zealand. His uh, latest book is Havana Syndrome. Um uh, I want to go right back to the, uh, the live chat here. We have some more questions. Uh, let's see here. Um, oh, this one had to do with, again, the Havana syndrome. We touched on this earlier, but uh, MG wants to go back to this idea of microwave technology. As he, he says, it's well-documented, actually patented. What evidence does Dr. Bartholomew have to dismiss the claims of Havana syndrome other than anecdotal stories? Well, you don't. Well, you're not. You're not well, offering anecdotal stories. You're anyway. Go ahead.
1: Well, what evidence is there? I mean, uh, if if someone is claiming that Santa Claus was on their roof, you need to give me the evidence, and uh, and you evaluate that evidence. I mean, if you look at, for example, um, sonic weapons and microwaves. With sonic weapons, um, ninety nine. If, if you're targeting somebody, and I've been to Havana. I've seen the buildings where these people were supposedly targeted in. I mean, it's unbelievable to think that somebody could be targeted inside, deep inside, such massive buildings. For starters, with a sonic device, 99% of the sound waves would bounce off the outer wall. Um, And when you look at a microwave device, it would have to be massive. wouldn't work, and it would literally, according to the experts, with the Frey effect, heat your brain. And others around the area would certainly know uh, it was there. And that's not what you're seeing here. Uh, Kenneth Foster at the University of Pennsylvania, he's the scientist that uh, was one of the first two scientists in the 70s to first identify this effect with microwave Radiation known as the the Frey effect. And he looked at these cases and he said, it's definitely not the Frey effect. It's impossible. Can't be. It's easy to speculate, but what you have to go then by is evidence. Okay, well, does anybody have recordings of these sounds? Yes. There are about 15 recordings that we are aware of. By the way, the FBI report that had it leaked that 12 of those recordings were insect sounds and their analysis that's never been revealed to the public and i suspect that that's because you've got people in the trump administration and the biden administration who are lifelong bureaucrats who are embarrassed by this embarrassed by the fact that crickets and cicadas were mistaken for a, a sonic or microwave weapon and they've spent millions of dollars on this and now they just want to end it and not long ago, they had the case in Vienna. Well, that case was leaked to the media. The U.S. government didn't announce it. And that sent a message to me saying that, ooh, they didn't announce that. Maybe they suspect that this is psychogenic. I think you're going to see that it. they'll come out in the relatively near future and conclude that uh, the mass psychogenic illness explanation is not only back on the table, it's the most plausible
0: Right, and, and I don't want to uh, put words in your mouth. you don't need me to defend you, but I, I, I don't think you're <laughs> suggesting that targeted individuals uh, couldn't exist, that they're, they're, you know that there are there could be individuals who are in fact being remotely harassed electronically, uh, We know the technology exists, we know voice to skull technology exists, we know certain microwave weapons have been patented and so forth. You're not necessarily disputing that. you're saying in this instance, it just
1: doesn't fit right? Yeah, look, it definitely doesn't fit in this instance. Um, For targeted individuals, I have to be honest with you. I think if, if I were a targeted individual, I think you have to be honest with yourself and get a couple of different health assessments just to be sure. And then secondly, I mean, there are a number of people in the paranormal and throughout history that have had visions that appear to be normal, healthy people. That they hear voices. It doesn't mean you're a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, it could mean you just you just process things differently. Um, however, I do think targeted individuals owe it to themselves to have themselves checked by a couple of different uh, independent um, psychiatrists to assess their condition because. The consequences of that can be catastrophic if you get it wrong, but I'm not. I, I have no doubt that some targeted individuals um, may have other conditions that we don't fully understand that uh, could lead them to believe that they're being targeted, um, such as the fantasy-prone personality. But I, I'm, you know, I think it's important to be honest, um, and I'm. I just feel a lot better if they got their health checked out.
0: All right, here is a question from uh, Stephen Krafsky. He asks, do you think that Trump derangement syndrome is mass psychogenic illness?
1: No. First of all, I'm not quite sure what Trump derangement syndrome is. I suppose it's the notion that you are ignoring certain facts, intending to believe what you want to believe. I think that's called the human condition and it's happened forever since we were in caves. And uh, no, I don't. Um, There are a lot of things out there that aren't mass psychogenic illness. And um, yeah, I mean, I just think it comes down to, I blame a lot of what's going on on the internet because all of a sudden now you got this massive information technology out there and it's unvetted. And people can claim just about anything and you get followers and, you know, you have to be responsible. I think the evidence is overwhelming that the COVID shot is uh, AstraZeneca one anyway in New Zealand, is safe and effective, although you could die from it. Uh, nothing is totally safe and effective. I could choke to death on a cheese sandwich tonight. Hopefully I'm not. Uh, but um, the other thing I I want to mention, and that is during the uh, last couple of segments, you've injected a fair amount of humor. And I think You know, uh, I try never to take myself too seriously. I focus on facts. But I think if you're dealing with this material, you have to have a sense of humor and uh, not get too worked up over it. And I've seen that with some. I have communicated and corresponded with several targeted individuals in the United States um, and Canada. And I don't really much anymore. But, I mean, the ones that I talk to seem very reasonable and uh, I'm open-minded, but I do think um, it's certainly unusual to have these reports of this happening. And I, I do think it's important to get your health checked out. Uh, Carol Ann, Carol Ann Stacy asks: Were
0: the witch hunts mass hysteria?
1: Well, yes and no. The witch hunts per se were a social panic—the belief that there's these witches and demons. However, the absolute belief in witches and demons resulted in clusters of people who believed it um, having outbreaks of mass psychogenic illness, uh, demonic possession, which is found in all cultures all across the world. And what happens is, look, if you've ever seen a case, someone who's in a demonic trance or something like that. It looks absolutely real, it's frightening, it's stunning. But what you have to realize is that same person, if they're in a different cultural background, for example, in parts of Sri Lanka or India, who work themselves into trances during certain rituals, um, and they want to become a monkey, the monkey god, or um, they want to become a tiger, they will actually, when they go into the trance, go running around like a monkey and then try to climb up a tree or go around on all fours growling like a, a, a tiger or something like that. And people get this misunderstood. There's two types of mass psychogenic illness for the most part. There's those in schools and factories, which are by far the most common. They happen in Western countries. And they happen as a result of extreme environmental concerns. It's almost always triggered by exposure to a unusual or strange odor. They have rapid onset and uh, ending. They usually end within 24 hours and it's over. The victims recover very quickly. The kind like Salem in 1691, 1692 are less common, and they tend to happen in non-Western countries where you get an absolute belief in demons and witches. And what happens is, the, uh, like in Malaysia, uh, a young girl will suddenly fall down in the classroom and start twitching, shaking, go into altered states of consciousness, see ghosts and demons. The nerves and neurons that are sending messages to the brain get garbled under long-term stress. And that's what you see in these outbreaks. They happen in Malaysia in the most strictest islamic schools and they happen in malawi and africa in the most strictest christian schools it's the same pressure long term unrelenting pressure all work and no play you you're in a boarding school situation you can't go home at night and just after a while it builds and builds and then one person goes twitching and shaking and it triggers a number of people in the same group And before you know it, within three days, you got 24 students twitching and shaking, believing they're possessed by demons. And they'll often bring in a witch doctor, which can work. But the problem is if you believe it and you reduce the stress and you send the girls home and you spread everybody out. However, the problem is if you bring in a witch doctor and they say, okay, the demon's gone now and you get a flare up, then that's bad because then that reinforces the belief that there's demons there and it just it can lead cases going on for months if not years and there have been cases like that
0: mike loge asks can mass hysteria be intentionally reversed by the power of suggestion
1: yes it can like havana syndrome i believe if the diplomats fully understood what had happened that um the anomalies that have because this The type of mass psychogenic illness that's happened in Cuba is not like the anxiety hysteria that happens overnight, exposure to a sudden smell. It was building up over months and months. And then um, there was the report that they sprayed for the Zika virus. And so now they're worried about the Zika virus. And then they're worried about the spray of the Zika virus, right? And then you've got the concern that they're under attack by a sonic weapon and the rumor spreading. And then the note that they're under 24-hour surveillance. All of these stresses were the perfect storm and came together, resulting in these more serious symptoms, neurological symptoms. You rarely see the neurological symptoms in short-term cases with smells. It's always the long-term cases which exactly is what happened in Cuba. All right, can we apply the mass hysteria or
0: social panic to the modern day UFO phenomenon?
1: Well, I did a master's thesis on that at the Flinders University of South Australia. Yes, it's more of a social panic. It used to be thought in the 40s and 50s, oh, it's, it's mass hysteria, people are seeing flying saucers. No. What happens with the flying saucers? First of all, you have to admit that, uh, as someone who's written a book on the history of, of UFOs and UFO sighting waves, um, I readily admit that there is a small, well under 1% of cases that I can't fully explain because there's a lack of data. And I'm to, not going to claim I know. But for the cases that you have the data and can look at them closely, they tend to disintegrate quite easily. And so, look, there are people ask me all the time, are there UFOs? Of course there's UFOs. There's objects in the sky people, people can't identify. Technically a UFO. It doesn't necessarily mean it's an extraterrestrial spacecraft. Um, but when people say UFO, that's what people are often implying, isn't it? Oh, that you've seen a, an extraterrestrial spacecraft. And people have to be careful because to become part of one of the greatest mysteries in the history of mankind, the UFO phenomena, all I have to do on a clear night is go out into my backyard, turn out all my lights, and look into the sky, and maybe eventually I will see an object in the sky I can't identify. And I'm part of one of the greatest mysteries in the history of humanity. Um, But most sightings are lights in the night, right? And when you look at these UFO sighting waves, that I looked at it in my master's thesis, they're almost always triggered historically by the same same pattern. You get an initial sensational case that would be reported in the press. And then it causes people to scrutinize their environment and search for evidence of some type of ugly worldly craft out there. Assuming, this, now the skies have to be pretty clear at this point, and then people also redefine the past week or two of things that they've seen. So I believe that um, then that triggers these, these waves of sightings. And I think you get these flaps because you get people redefining ambiguous, almost exclusively what? nocturnal aerial stimuli, reflective of the expectation, ex- reflective of the zeitgeist, the social barometer of the times. People see what they expect to see. Um, the same thing with Bigfoot. The same thing with uh, chupacabras. What about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case? Well, I think that's pretty clear what happened there. I think they're sincere, honest people. They reported time loss, but they went under regressive hypnosis. And I believe that even Doctor, what was it, Benjamin Simon, who yes. regressed them, yes, wasn't uh, convinced that that happened. Um, that didn't happen that far from where we live in upstate New York, really. Uh, Indian head, New Hampshire. Right. Um, look, I believe they're honest, sincere people, but I need more evidence than that. And the problem is regressive hypnosis. I remember going to a, a UFO conference many, many, many years ago. Um, and I think it was um, Bud Hopkins was there. And I asked him. I said, well, what about regressive hypnosis? I mean, what are you concerned about that? And he wasn't particularly concerned with it, but, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an issue. It's certainly an issue because people are very suggestible in that state if you believe that you've had uh, an encounter. But I certainly believe that most people are not hoaxing. They are honest, sincere people. They are credible people reporting incredible experiences, they're ordinary people reporting extraordinary experiences. And I, I say to the UFO researchers out there go for it. Research and um, try to document a really good case and then publish it in a scientific journal.
0: Now, I'm not a psychologist and I, I don't want to play a psychologist on the radio, but I'm wondering in some of these cases, and I've had a guest on discussing this, Randall Montgomery, in fact, wrote a book about the alien abduction phenomenon. And the suggestion was that perhaps the alleged victim of an abduction, some psychological defense mechanism kicks in to create this narrative of an abduction, which is covering over something perhaps even far more sinister, like sexual
1: abuse. Does that make sense? You know, it does. There have been a number of psychologists that have suggested that as an explanation. And it's been noted, definitely noted in the literature by a number of researchers well before these uh, reports came out. But there's another phenomena out there that I published on in 1991 with the chairman of the psychology department at the University of Notre Dame. And we looked at the case histories of a large number of abductees uh, and contactees. And a lot of people don't give too much credence to the contactees. They give more credence to the abductees because the contactees tend to be more, you know, um, repetitive. But um, there were very similar characteristics to the fantasy prone personality. And I really believe that uh, a number of victims are suffering from a fantasy prone personality. When I say suffering, it's almost like a gift. And when I came up with that, Hypothesis with Keith Basterfield of uh, UFO South Australia. And we published it in the, um, the UFO Reporter They were published by Jalen Heinick in the late 80s. Bud Hopkins came out and said that he believed that for the uh, Whitley Streber case, that we had accurately assessed his case, that he believed that Whitley Streber was fantasy-prone personality. He wrote that right in the journal.
0: Wow. All right. We'll take another time out, Robert. Stay with us. Back with more of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrat. Dr. Robert Bartholomew stays with us. And uh, his books include Havana Syndrome, The Martians Have Landed, A History of Media-Driven Panics and Hoaxes, American Hauntings, the true stories behind Hollywood's scariest movies. Uh, I want to ask you about some bizarre behavior. This, um, this young ma- man who believed he was a cat and exhibited feline behavior. Tell me about him.
1: Well, that's one of the most bizarre cases I have ever seen. The thing is, it was in a really respected medical journal, and it was very well documented. One of the um, people who investigated was uh, affiliated, I think, with the uh, Harvard Hospital. He wasn't normal, but he presented as normal, and that's so unusual. And he was even a graduate student. What had happened was his parents at a young age would punish him by having him chained to a tree outside. And There was a bit of a chain, almost like a pet. And so he was out there quite a bit. And so, in that situation, he became very close to the cat. When I say very close to a cat, he was, like, having sexual relations with a cat. So, it was... Oh, um, dear. Yeah. So, you know, the the thing there, the man who who mistook his wife for a hat? Well, this is the man who uh, thought he was a cat. It's just a very... Bizarre case. And when I saw it, I just said, I've never seen uh, any, anything like it before. It was. I'm just trying to think now that would have been 1990 and it would have been the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease. And so one day, this kid, he's 17 years old, shows up at his psychiatrist's office seeking help for depression and during the session he just made a passing remark he presented as pretty much normal he made a passing remark that uh, ever since he was a young boy he'd love it, led a secret life as a cat and um and that he was able to keep that secret from his friends and relatives and it's just this amazing case so he started to delve in deeper and he said that what was it at the age of 11 he, because he kept being out there by the tree and with the cat all the time, he said he fell in love with his pet cat, Tiffany. And then he eventually learned to speak cat. Um, and, but that was the problem. He grew up, um, he was very angry. He was tied to the tree a lot. And so he didn't really identify with his real parents. And can we guess who he identified with? He identified with Tiffany the cat, as kind of like a surrogate uh, parent. And so um, now I've, I've found the report here, and I'm just going to read a small quotation because if I don't read the quotation, you'll think I'm making it up. Okay. Quote, when alone, he began to regularly hunt with cats, to eat small prey and raw meat, to have sexual activity with cats, and cereal monogamous relationships and to converse with them by meowing and feline gestures. Um, He reports that the activities have been continuous and are not confined to episodes of depression. Now the other bizarre thing about this, he would go to the zoo a lot and then he would hang out by the tiger cage and profess to speak tiger language. With this tiger that was was in the cage um yeah so His- then he would collect the tiger hair and bring it home and stuff like that and um it was really really bizarre and then the tiger's name was dolly uh and things are going okay but then everything collapsed for this guy when they transferred dolly to another zoo and he couldn't hang out with the with the with the tiger and um yeah, so it was a real problem. So then he started to, like, tune out of reality. He would um, he would do things like wear tiger-stripe clothing, um, wouldn't cut his nails so they were longer than normal, um, have long, blushy hair and a beard, um, trying to promote a cat-like appearance.
0: Does it have a happy ending? I mean, what, did he receive psychological help did he get therapy did it uh, resolve itself
1: he was in therapy but we don't know the outcome and uh we certainly don't know who he was although now his neighbors probably do and uh, his parents probably do as well so um yeah it's just just you can't make that up i mean it's you could you couldn't make a script up some guy having relationships with with cats in his backyard Now, this isn't really related, although it
0: is kind of an unusual, I guess, dysmorphia. And that is people that have perfectly healthy limbs, but they feel as if they should be amputated in order to feel fully whole. Is this something you've delved into?
1: Look, not really, but it's similar, I think, to phantom limb syndrome. And um, I see it as a yeah, they actually feel that it's there and they want to feel whole there was one guy i'm trying to remember which country he was in and um he actually he wanted the doctors to cut his leg off and they refused and then one day they uh the ambulance were rushed to uh his room in his apartment and he had cut part of his leg off and um they rushed him to the hospital, saved his life, and he lost his leg, which is what he wanted all along. Yeah, that's a tricky one. You know, if, look, if somebody wants both their arms cut off, would you do it? Uh, I probably don't think I would. And uh, but yeah, I mean, they feel like they really want it off and it's it's an impediment to their life. Well, Well, the first,
0: I guess, protocol for doctors is, first of all, do no harm. So. I would say that cutting a healthy limb off would be doing harm. How much of these behaviors, dysmorphias can be attributed to modern living? You talked about the impact of social media. How about just you know living in the in the electronic age, the digital age? is that making us less mentally healthy?
1: Well, I don't think it's doing us any favors, but it's all it's like anything. It's how you use it and it's often used for a negative. I mean, there are reports of outbreaks of psychogenic ticks in a number of places around the world since the outbreak of COVID. And you can clearly see psychogenic ticks when you do a scan. And people are reporting these. And I think it's the stress of lockdown. It's long-term stress. It's persistent stress. And You know, there's all kinds of situations out there when you're in a situation like that throughout the history of the world. People exposed to long term, prolonged stress has been responsible for a lot of different outbreaks of mass psychogenic illness and some of the more bizarre ones, not the ones where you smell a smell and it's over within 24 hours, but the ones where there's twitching and shaking and altered states of consciousness and it's becoming more common. For example, in the Leroy case in 2011, the neurologist noted that in interviewing some of the girls, they were imitating what they were seeing on YouTube and social media in general. And so, if social media allows us now to go away from the group ordinarily in the past, you had to be in the group to get it triggered, go away from the group and just immerse yourself in watching a video that can potentially trigger something if you believe that you're going to have that, and also the the actual belief itself. Um, I think the internet's been responsible for a lot of ills in in the past couple of decades, and uh, it needs to be better monitored.
0: 100%. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk about uh, hauntings and uh, get your take on that. Robert Bartholomew stays with us, medical sociologist who studies topics on the margins of science. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Dr. Robert Bartholomew stays with us. Uh, His books include Exotic Deviants, Hoaxes, Myths, and Manias, Little Green Men, Meowing Nuns, and Headhunting Panics, A Study of Mass Psychogenic Illnesses and Social Delusions, UFOs and Alien, Contact, Two Centuries of Mystery, Mass Hysteria in Schools, and uh, his latest is Havana Syndrome. Also, American Hauntings, the true story behind Hollywood's scariest movies. Let's talk about the Exorcist, supposedly based on a true story, and a boy communicated via you know bloody scratches on his body at one point. the scrawled message read, "No school. What can you tell us about maybe some little known facts about the Exorcist, Robert
1: Damn, that was my one liner I was already for I, <laughs> it. Um, I love that uh when he's he's got well it looks like you're gonna have to go back to school. And about 20 minutes later, he rips open his shirt and (laughs) on his chest, he's got no school. I think it's a combination of play acting and being in a real trance like state, you know, I think which is common, you know, it's common with what happened in Salem. Clearly, some of those girls in Salem were experiencing uh, mass psychogenic illness. I mean, it's classic what was going on. But here's the thing. People say to me things like, and not to get off the exorcist, so they say things like, oh, but the people in Salem, they were suffering from ergot poisoning. No, they weren't. Because in ergot poisoning, you can't go from being possessed by a demon to being stone-cold normal. Because, you know, people were jumping out of windows. They were, uh, they were insane, basically. I mean, they were hallucinating for weeks. Um, they were just literally crazy. Um, if you look at uh, some of the uh, descriptions of a um, ergot poisoning outbreak in France in the 1950s. So um, so you go back to The Exorcist and um, it's, you know, when I looked at The Exorcist, when I looked at The Haunting in Connecticut, um, the, um, the Conjuring and the Amityville Horror, looked at all of these. I'm like, yeah, this is going to be cool. This is going to be fun because we're looking at this and we're just looking at the evidence and one by one, the cases just, uh, fell apart. I mean, in terms of uh, proof that these people, people do get appear to be possessed by demons that's happened since time immemorial. There are well-documented cases throughout history and not just one case. Um, entire groups of people in towns during the Middle Ages. It was very common. It was very common in medieval nunneries. It just so happened to be the strictest nunneries, right? And under that strict backdrop, and this kid had serious issues, you know, he he had a lot of tension in his life. It was building up, building up. And that's when you get these Outbreaks of demonic like possession you get the twitching you get the shaking you get the altered states of consciousness and look you can come in and out of consciousness you can at one point be totally uh, unconscious or you can be totally conscious and uh, so it would just it would it would ebb and flow go back and forth It went on and on and on but for actual proof that um, this guy was possessed by a demon or You know, his his head was twisting around or anything like that. I mean, it's just just not there. It is a case of demonic possession, which happens all over the world. It's um, more common than many people think. And there are people that go out and are have exorcist groups and they have meetings and they take people that go into these trans like states and they try to rid them of the devil by speaking prayers over them and sprinkling holy water on them and yelling for the devil to be cast out. And interestingly enough, it seems to work in some cases. However, you're often dealing with people who have serious uh, psychiatric issues, and I would suggest that anyone, before they approach a, a demonologist and an exorcist, Go and see a psychiatrist first, because um, there have been cases where it has turned tragically
0: wrong. I spoke with a New York State Board certified psychiatrist, Dr. Richard Gallagher, uh, who wrote an article. It was published in a Catholic uh, publication. It was called An Authentic Case of Demonic Possession, And, and he did a psychological or a psychiatric examination of a young woman. And ultimately, he concluded that it was likely a an authentic case. Now, you could say, well, <laughs> that's one person's opinion. He told me things about an encounter with this woman. That she knew things about him she couldn't possibly have known. She spoken suddenly would speak in in, in a foreign tongue that apparently she had no knowledge of. Um, what do you say to that?
1: Well, the glossolalia speaking in tongues is very common. It's very common in modern-day Christianity. I mean, in Toronto, you've had that Toronto Blessing Group. Not sure if you're familiar with that. Yes, yes. Um, And then they kind of mimic back what is being done there. I mean, they're famous for laughing, right? Um, But, I mean, you get people uh, making different animal noises as as well. And um, I just think um, the most plausible explanation is the the scientific explanation here, unless you can come up with something really concrete. Now, it may not fall within any of the parameters of known conditions, but there are unusual conditions out there. We haven't fully understood every condition, and it might be a variation of a condition. And so just because it doesn't fall in with a particular uh, syndrome that we know of today doesn't mean it's psychological. And in fact, I tend to err on the side of of science before I'm going to believe that uh, there is a devil who has possessed someone. All right. Another time. the, The other thing. Okay, Robert, just hold on to that thought, and we'll uh, pick that
0: up on the other side. Robert Bartholomew stays with us a few minutes yet. Last call to the phones. If you've got a question in the YouTube chat, uh, Ryan will serve that up for me, and I'll read it on the air. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show just after these. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarant. And we are back with Robert Bartholomew right now. We're talking about uh, ghosts and hauntings and uh, you you have a particular interest in ghosts. I mean, you believe people are experiencing, uh, witnessing something. Do you have any thoughts as to what
1: they are experiencing? There's no question. There are ghosts. People ask me, do you believe in ghosts? Yeah, there are ghosts just like there are UFOs. The question is, what are the ghosts? Is it something from the human mind Or is it some type of physical um, afterlife? And we have to be careful because, as Carl Sagan said, wherever we have strong emotions, we're liable to fool ourselves. Um, I've often asked basic questions like, "Okay, logically looking at it, I definitely want to believe in ghosts. However, I think to myself, okay, well, if ghosts are real, how come they're seen with clothing? like, how come a ghost has clothes? Why is that? Why isn't it just like the spirit or something like that? And look, my brother, Paul Bartholomew is a well-known Bigfoot researcher and author in upstate New York. And, um, you know, we have debates on this all the time. Um, you know, I'm the sympathetic skeptic. I need to see the dead alien or the dead Bigfoot in front of me. And he's like, well, Maybe I'll say, Paul. Well, how can you explain Bigfoot? They don't find the body. Well, maybe they eat their dead. I'm like, yeah, maybe they do, but I'm not buying it. Um, so with ghosts, <laughs> he I did not leave. say maybe they
0: eat their dead.
1: <laughs> you mean maybe they bury I their have to dead? Say he did. He said, <laughs> <laughs> no, he said maybe they eat their dead. Okay. And I'm like, right. okay, because I was saying, <clears throat> I almost made it through the interview without too much coughing. There, I'm almost there. Um, I said, well, where's the body? I want to believe as much as the next person, where's the body, where's the fossils, where are the bones, where's the DNA evidence. And I wrote two Bigfoot books with my brother and I'm the sympathetic scepter, and he's the, the believer. Right. And we both have a healthy respect of each other. You know, it's not like he drives around with a truck, ch- a truck with a giant foot on the side of it or something like that. I mean, it's very normal, but, um, I just think uh, I, I need the evidence. People used to see fairies all the time, but uh, science didn't accept the existence of fairies.
0: Right. When we're talking about metaphysical things or spirit, how do you come up with physical evidence for something that isn't physical?
1: Well, that's a good question. I I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I need to see some type of concrete evidence, though, that that it's there. And, for example, and not to change the subject, if 15 different people, they have recordings of people getting sick, and every single one of them were sounds of insects, I'm going with the insect hypothesis, right? Right. I mean, you've got to go where the evidence leads. Absolutely.
0: Right. Yes, you have to look for the prosaic explanation. You mentioned Bigfoot. Your brother's hunting Bigfoot up in upstate New York. Has
1: he had a sighting? No. He's very normal. We've been studying this since we were like 8 years old. And there was a massive flap of Bigfoot sightings near our farm on Lake Champlain, near Lake Champlain, and ever since we started collecting cases and we collected a bunch of cases and published it in a book called Monsters of the North Woods, which is no longer in print, I and mean, they sold over 10,000 copies. Um and people still have sightings of Bigfoot. And I have a hunch. There is a scientist in Australia who has suggested that we know now that a small percentage of most humans, if you're born um, out of sub-Saharan Africa, that we have a small percentage of Neanderthal DNA. And there's only one way that could happen is human beings... Uh, Mated with Neanderthal, right? Hundred percent accepted within the scientific community. Sure, sure. Well, what if those matings in that overlap time period were not consensual? So you've got this great fear driven among the human community, particularly at night, and particularly you know in the woods and things like this, where um, you're fearing these creatures. What are these creatures? Neanderthal looks similar to Bigfoot, quite honestly. And um, maybe there's, which I don't fully understand, but maybe there's some kind of human defense mechanism here to um, make us hypervigilant, particularly at night, where it triggers off seeing what you think is a large, hairy, uh, bipedal creature. And that would help to explain why people all over the world in almost every country see large hairy creatures almost every year. The People are honest and sincere, most of them, yet there's never, ever any physical proof. And I'm just just thinking out loud, maybe it's some unusual explanation like that. I can buy that Bigfoot's there, but then what about the, people say, what about the footprints? You know, what about the footprints? And well, those could be hoaxed, and then they say, well, what about five miles in on the side of this mountain? Well, yeah, but that could have been hoax too. Um, so I'm, I'm, I want to believe if you bring in the, the Bigfoot. And the other problem is the photos, right? I mean, now everyone in the world practically has a camera and you're walking everywhere. Where's the photo? Yes, there are some photos online, um, but they're either really blurry Or too good, if you know what I mean.
0: Right, right. Well, the comedian Mitch Hedberg suggested that maybe Bigfoot is fuzzy. (laughs) Not only furry, but he was just born fuzzy. That's why the pictures are fuzzy. You mentioned uh, Lake Champlain. We have to talk about Lake...
1: Sorry, The other thing is... Yeah. Yep. The other thing is, I mean, how come Bigfoot is almost always seen as a male creature? How come you don't get a lot of reports of people seeing, you know, a mother Bigfoot... Jiggling off into the distance, or something, or uh, baby Bigfoot. Yeah, you get the, once in a great, great while. No, the you Patterson get a baby film,
0: The famous Patterson film is supposedly a female because it's got the the you know the pendulous breasts. That's supposedly a female. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I need more than that. I just it's like where is it going? Um, if it's a flesh and blood creature, I can't see that it's there. I mean, the only way I can see it's there besides this theory about some kind of projection phenomena, is if there's some kind of alternate universe where the creature comes into our universe and back out, and there's just no science for it. All I know is people claim to see it. Uh, Most of the people are pretty sincere, but there's never any absolute physical proof. Then it's certainly very uh, frustrating.
0: Absolutely, it is. Just very quickly, we just have a few minutes here, but I want to talk about, because you mentioned Lake Champlain, uh, which, uh, of course, the legendary lake monster there, Champy, we've got up here, we've got one in uh, Lake uh, Lake Erie. I think it's Bessie. Um, you know, there's Nessie and Loch Ness. There's uh, the Ogopogo in the Okanagan, Lake Okanagan in British Columbia. Is it possible that these are some previously, you know, unknown species or, or or a leftover from prehistoric times? What do you think? Uh what is champy, do you think?
1: Well, I'd like to believe that it is, but if it is, there would have to be a community of them of a roughly 35 creatures. That's according to people from the Smithsonian. So you got to have a living breathing community. The most likely explanations um are that it's a zoigliodon, a form of primitive whale. The other explanation, and that was by Roy Mackle at the University of Chicago. He proposed that based on the sighting descriptions. Then the other uh, hypothesis is that it's a plesiosaur. Right. Uh, here's the problem. These creatures need to come up for air. And every so often, the lake freezes over entirely. Although with global warming, it's not quite as bad as it has been. Um, how are these creatures surviving? The other thing that I've noted is when you plot out the sightings, they go and bursts. And I think what's happening there is you get initial sensational case. Now, people are scrutinizing the lake for other cases where or ordinarily you wouldn't be paying attention. And they're more prone to reporting something that's out there. There's all kinds of things that could be uh, mistaken for. Um, So, I mean, here in New Zealand, we have the Waikato River. In the 1890s, people were seeing giant crocodiles in the Waikato. They don't anymore. What I think was happening is, if you go back and look at the reports, they're seeing seals back-to-back coming in from the ocean. But, um, you know, human beings are very susceptible and open to making mistakes. I mean, all you got to do is watch a football game and, Referees are trained observers. They practice all the time. They have excellent eyesight. Yet they constantly make mistakes, and they got to go back to the video. And so, is yeah, champion a sturgeon? Very is, a stu-
0: is champion champion a sturgeon? A large eel?
1: Oh, look! It's a combination of things. Um, the number one candidate is a sturgeon. I mean, a sturgeon is long. It looks like a, a prehistoric creature. And uh, if you've ever seen a sturgeon oh yes uh, in the water, I mean, they can be scary.
0: Absolutely. Listen, uh, Robert, we, we are out of time, sadly, but I want to thank you for hanging out for two hours, all the way in New New, uh, New Zealand. and I uh, appreciate I know you're not feeling 100 percent, but you acquitted yourself uh, wonderfully, and thank you so much for this.:
1: uh, Look, thank you very much for being on your show, and um, take care.
0: All right, Dr. Robert Bartholomew, check out Havana Syndrome. Controversial, but intriguing. All right, that's it for me back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.